0: How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Today I'm your host, and uh, welcome back, Ian. Hello, everybody. Uh, uh, Welcome back. We're talking about uh, Thomas Edward Lawrence. Better known as Lawrence of Arabia because of the 1962 film about him. But before we get into that, I would again like to remind you guys to check the Facebook page for information on the episodes as well as to ask questions and to stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on our awesome Anchor website to make this podcast. And uh, we've had a few problems with it here and there, but otherwise it's been pretty good. And then in the end, we'll give some shout-outs to those those of you guys who have already been liking the Facebook page and been following it. And we thank you for the growth that we've been experiencing with it. All right. So again, like I said, today we're gonna to be talking about the Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence, who was born in eighteen or sorry, August sixteenth, eighteen eighty-eight, and died May 19th, 1935. He was a British archaeologist, army officer, diplomat, and writer, and has been renowned for his role in the Arab revolt in the Sinai and Palestinian campaigns against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. The breadth and variety of his activities and associations and his abilities to describe them vividly in his writing have earned him international fame as the title Lawrence of Arabia, a title again used in the 1962 film based on his wartime activities. Today we're going to talk about the real Lawrence of Arabia and his title that has been given to him and explain who this great man was, what he did, and how he changed history. So this will be the first person in a group of episodes about different people throughout history and uh, why they've been important, specifically explorers and adventurers and people like Thomas Edward Lawrence. And... Uh, I would like to begin these episodes with a quote by each people. So this is a quote most famously attributed to Thomas Edward Lawrence. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night and the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find that it was vanity. But watch out, for the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act upon their dreams with open eyes to make them possible. This I did. And now we will get into... Those small beginnings just give me shivers.
1: <laughs> all right, guys, what better way to get into all of his uh, accomplishments than the start where he started? So, Thomas Edward Lawrence was born in Tremadoc, Carnarvonshire. Karnav- That's a name, uh, yeah. I know, right? I can't <laughs> pronounce that at all. <laughs> Which is now a part of the Guisnes district in Britain. Charmington uh, Carnarvonshire uh, does <laughs> is no longer really exists. But uh, Lawrence was the son of Sir Thomas Chapman and Sarah Maiden. Uh, he attended the uh, the high school and the university. Uh, medieval military architecture was his first interest.
0: University entrance. of Oxford.
1: Yeah. Uh, he studied the Crusaders' castles and uh, in France and eventually published a book on the castles awarding him first-class honors in history.
0: Yeah. So essentially his beginnings as uh, he's, he's often too attributed for a lot of uh, his role in the, in the Middle Eastern campaigns and the, the stuff that he did in the Middle East during World War one, but really he actually started out being very interested in medieval history, especially with medieval architecture. And so he went around and he studied a lot of these castles in France and, uh, it was like a hobby for him. He really enjoyed thinking about the past and all these different castles and what they would have been doing during the time that they were at their, their peak of existence. And so uh, this is really how he started out with this interest in archaeology and medieval and architectural history.
1: Exactly. I mean, we, we see this uh, this historical figure and we don't realize that he started out with uh, with simple dreams just like a lot of other people I mean, obviously not super simple. I mean he's still traveling and and uh excavating, but it's really really cool to see that he has uh interests like these,
0: yeah, and already at such a young age, he's already done so much with his life that uh once once he goes down the road and he does more of what he's famous for, he's already a step ahead of uh of what he would have been, yeah. And uh, with
1: this interest, he later acquired a traveling fellowship from Magdalen College, where he would join in on expeditions to excavate different archaeological points of interest, including the. Sorry, how do you pronounce that? The
0: Hittite, right?
1: The Hittite settlement of Carchemish.
0: Yeah, for, so for those of you don't who don't know, pretty much the Hittite civilization was in ancient Mesopotamia or the river by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And so uh, on top of his career studying medieval castles and castles in France and their architecture, he also studied some of the Hittite history, especially at Carchemas, which is one of their most famous uh, cultures or uh, one of their most famous places that the Hittite civilization developed in. And then uh, tons of different archaeological excavations. So even before starting his career as a lieutenant and then eventually a major in the British Army, he was a he was an archaeologist, and so he already had such a cool career and uh, was already a very colorful person before he even began any of his military adventures.
1: Yeah, and more on top of his archaeology, he also uh, spent a lot of his free time traveling to different countries and developing different languages. And he even acquired a sponsorship, a sponsorship to explore new lands and uh, go on map making reconnaissance expeditions before he eventually joined the military.
0: Yeah. And again, as you said, this is even before he joined the military. So the fact that he's already doing a, a lot of this map making stuff and going to different countries and even developing different languages, uh, he's already acquired a vast expanse of knowledge and uh, he's done a, He's done a lot of stuff with his life, even before he began his military military campaigns, as we've been saying. Yeah, I mean,
1: he has so much experience, which is why you can see that he got so far ahead in the military.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a good precursor before he started his military career. With this background, it really gave him the edge that he needed to do all the stuff that he would eventually do.
1: Exactly. So, like we are saying, soon after war enthralled, he decided he didn't exist in the British Army.
0: Yeah. And then now we'll get into some of his military action before the Arab revolt, which he's most known for. So I'll get into that now. All right. So now I want to get into some of Lawrence's military actions before he did the Arab revolt, which he's most known for. And so uh, even before the Arab revolt, Lawrence is actually spending a lot of time doing archeological surveys and map making for British expeditions. Actually, in uh, January of 1914, Woolley and Lawrence were co-opted by the British military as an archaeological smokescreen for a British military survey of the Negev Desert. And so uh, I actually found this interesting because the fact that uh, archaeological surveys could be conducted by the British military at the time makes me want to be in the British military at that time. That must have been awesome (sighs) because uh, there's not a job like that anymore, really, in in our armed forces today. So I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, like jobs like map making and reconnaissance. There's not much you can do with that uh, these days.
0: All right, so they were funded by the Palestinian Exploration Fund to search for an area, uh, search for an area referenced in the Bible as the Wilderness of Zin, and they made an archaeological survey of the Negev Desert along the way. So the Negev was strategically important as an Ottoman army attacking from Egypt would have to cross it. And so uh, it wasn't just an archeological survey, but it was for uh, reconnaissance again. And uh, it was for tactics because they knew that if the Ottoman army were to, uh, were to attack Egypt, they would have to cross through this desert. And so sending Lawrence there, they would gain an advanced knowledge of this desert and hopefully be able to use it to their advantage. If Egypt was to ever be sacked by the Ottoman empire.
1: So it was a military strategy to to sort of trap the enemy.
0: Yeah, essentially. It was a good way to get advanced knowledge of the area so that if the Ottoman Empire were to attack and go through it, they would know the area well enough to defend it. Mm-hmm. So following the outbreak of hostilities in August of 1914, Lawrence did not immediately enlist in the British Army. He held back until October when he was commissioned on a general list but before the end of the year, he was summoned by renowned archaeologist and historian, Lieutenant David Hogarth to the new Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit arriving in Cairo on December 15th of 1914. So following the outbreak. Oh, exactly, it was David. Oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. Uh, David Hogarth, you know, you're going to say it, was uh, actually he was one of Lawrence's mentors and uh, he looked up to David Hogarth. And so uh, this new mission or uh, this thing that he was summoned to by Lieutenant David Hogarth was a a really good opportunity for him because uh, not only would he get to serve with the Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit, but he would also get to do stuff for his mentor and the person that he looks up to. And uh, he was in Cairo before uh, the Arab revolt would begin. So that's also why that's important because... That's where he would be before the Arab revolt. Uh huh. At the Arab Bureau, Lawrence supervised the preparation of maps produced by a daily bulletin for the British generals operating in the theater and interviewed prisoners. He was an advocate of a British landing at Alexandretta, which never came to pass, and was also a consistent advocate of an independent Arab Syria. And so this is an important idea at the time because uh, there was no independent state in uh, in, in Syria. And uh, a lot of these Bedouin tribes and a lot of these Arab tribes were just wandering around and they often fought and had conflict with each other. So it was, it was a lot easier for the Ottoman empire to control the area. And so the British idea that if there was an independent Syria an independent Arab Syria was uh, a good way to be able to, fight against the Ottoman Empire by uniting, uniting these otherwise separate Arab tribes. And again, he would do uh he would do map making and map preparation. And uh, he really became a really advanced cartographer or a map maker. And uh, that's a part of what he would eventually be known for in the future. In the spring of 1916, Lawrence was dispatched to Mesopotamia to assist in relieving the siege of Kut by starting an Arab uprising and bribing Ottoman officials. This mission produced no useful results, and not long after these excursions, Lawrence would go to take part in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. And so, uh, again, Mesopotamia is this area between the Tigris and Euphrates, and you might remember him doing a lot of work with the Hittite civilization and the, the settlements at Kirkush. And uh, he would, again, go there in uh, the spring of 1916 and help with this siege that would, uh, uh, that would eventually start forming the idea of a great Arab uprising. So the, the small Arab uprising at the Siege of Kut essentially Started the larger Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, which uh, Lawrence would take part of and be most known for.
1: Yeah. So at this time, Arab was uh, Arabia was very under underdeveloped. Would you say?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Because again, a lot of these. A lot of the people that lived in Arabia at the time were seen as very primitive, and uh, they were tribes that often fought against each other. And so compared to the British military might and uh, the Ottoman military might at the time, uh, there, there was no question who was stronger. And so yeah. that's why Lawrence thought, sought to unite these tribes together so that he could, uh, he could make them a stronger force to fight against the Ottoman Empire. Exactly.
1: But why exactly did the Ottoman Empire want to uh, control Arabia?
0: Arabia especially was known for its oil deposits. And oil at the time was a very essential source for uh, almost everything in uh, mechanical life. Uh, everything from ships to, to cars to uh, motorcycles and uh, just transportation methods in general were really impacted by oil. And there was a ton of oil in Arabia. And so that's really why the Ottoman Empire wanted this area in their control. Yeah.
1: So this sounds exactly like uh, another conquistadors and the Aztec tribes.
0: Yeah, I guess in a way it is similar in the fact that uh, there's a lot of material resource that this bigger empire or civilization that wants and goes after.
1: Yeah, it seems very. Uh, it seems very familiar.
0: And you guys can listen to that episode with our uh, Spanish treasure series.
1: Yeah, of course. Throw back to that. But yeah, there's no question that these tribes would want to revolt.
0: Yep. And with the beginning of this revolt at the siege of Kut, it would eventually kindle the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, which, again, Lawrence would most be known for. And so let's get into the Arab revolt. All right, so getting into the Arab Revolt. Well, first, I would also like to mention that uh, I, I know that I've been saying the Arab Revolt a lot, but it's important because you got to take in mind that a lot of World War One and a lot of World War Two are often very generalized, and uh, a lot of more important campaigns and uh, lesser known campaigns. Also played a very important part, and so that's why I'm trying to pound in the Arab Revolt because the Arab Revolt was very much one of those forgotten campaigns that played a very important part in in World War One. And so, yeah,
1: exactly. A lot of the a lot of the smaller uh, conflicts never get brought uh, brought up in like your history class. Yeah,
0: you know, it's often very generalized, and so that's why I'm trying to pound in this idea and this campaign that played a very important part. So this all began in June of 1916 and uh, it was bogged down after a few successes with a real risk that the Ottoman forces would advance along this coast of the Red Sea and recapture Mecca. But on October 16th of 1916, Lawrence was sent to the Hejaz on an intelligence gathering mission led by Ronald Storrs. And this is when he would begin to play a very important part. He interviewed Sharif, Hassin's sons, Ali, Abdullah, and Faisal, And he concluded that Faisal was among the best candidates to lead the revolt. In June of 19, or sorry, in late December of 1916, Faisal and Lawrence worked out a plan for repositioning the Arab forces to prevent the Ottoman forces around Medina from threatening Arab positions and putting the railway from Syria under threat. And so uh, pretty much uh, Lawrence runs into this guy, uh, Faisal, who is the son of Sheriff Hussein, who was uh, one of the leading uh, Arab tribal leaders at the time, and he pretty much he talked with them and uh, he described his plan for the Arab revolt, which was already kind of starting with the with the siege that we talked about of Cole. And so the most, or sorry, I shouldn't say the most. I should say uh, the man that Lawrence saw best fit for this mission was the uh, Sheriff Hussein's son Faisal. And so, uh, he described to Faisal their plan and uh, what they were going to do to uh, create this Arab revolt against the Ottomans, and uh, they they worked out a plan that would eventually prove to be very successful, and uh, would really help the would really help the British forces during the World War One campaigns.
1: Yeah, and you uh, you mentioned that the The positions be putting under threat in the railway from Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly was the importance of the railway?
0: The railway, especially in Arabia, was very much a lifeline. Uh, it it was a lifeline in general for a lot of the transportation methods and uh, getting stuff around back then. Uh, that's how you carry your supply crates and uh, different ammunitions and uh, people even to uh, to combat zones, and so especially in Arabia where everything was sand and desolate land, the the railway was a really good way to get things across this expanse of territory faster than you would be able to do otherwise. And so uh, attacking the railway was important because if the Ottomans couldn't use it, then it would cripple their uh, transportation methods. Exactly.
1: It's very like, uh, it's, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of like Vietnam where there's clearly a more, Uh, a more developed uh, civilization but the underdeveloped civilization is able to use that to their advantage and like destroy their their supply lines and and like set up traps and stuff
0: yeah the same guerrilla tactics that the vietnamese soldiers used against the united states army and marines during the vietnam war are the same campaigns that we're seeing here in uh in the arab revolt Guerrilla tactics throughout history have proved uh, very important, and that's essentially what the Arabian revolt was, is another one of those guerrilla warfare tactics. So in 1917, Lawrence proposed a joint action with the Arab irregulars and forces who had previously been in the employ of the Ottomans to attack the lightly defended town of Akuba on the Red Sea. Akuba could have been attacked from the sea, but the mountains on the seaside were strongly defended, so he did his most impressive action so far by taking a surprise overland attack and taking the Turkish force's defenses from behind. The siege and attack on Akubar is really what develops Lawrence's legacy. And uh, if you guys ever saw the 1962 film, this is where uh, Lawrence makes his... uh, (coughs) This is where Lawrence makes his most impressive and daring attack on uh, any of the ottoman strongholds the fact that uh they were able to just cross this expanse of desolate uh desolate territory and land to get behind the city who would have never expected them to have come from that way really shows uh lawrence's daring capabilities to uh, take down the Ottomans because you had to take in mind that a lot of the Ottoman forces and defenses were facing towards the seaside because they thought in their mind that there was no way possible that any defenses or any Arabian groups could cross through the desert on the other side. But then, Lawrence is able to flip that around on them and does exactly that by crossing this desolate territory, not only crossing it, but also being able to take down Akbar, which was an important Ottoman defense during this time.
1: You know, it was really just incredible to have them travel so far and, and like they're risking their lives before they even fight.
0: Yeah, it's exactly. like just an incredible feat. It really is. Yes. The fact that they're able to cross again this desolate territory and able to take down a city after doing so is uh, really why Lawrence ends up being so successful in the Arab revolt. But uh, after Akbar, <coughs> sorry, after Akbar, Lawrence was sent on a reconnaissance mission under disguise in Daria, where he was captured by the Ottoman military, heavily beaten and sexually abused by the local bey and its guardsmen. His psychological effects may have explained his unconventional behavior in later life and Lawrence describing in his seven pillars of wisdom that in Daria that night, the citadel of my integrity had been irrevocably lost. Wow, that's very grim. So this is easily one of the most difficult and hardest things that he goes through during the air revolt. I, I can't even imagine some of the stuff that he, he would have went through under the Ottoman military control, especially after a siege like Akbar, which probably more than likely ticked off the ticked off the Ottomans. And so uh even before that he was disliked, but even after being captured, I, I can't even imagine.
1: It's incredible that he survived. Yeah. I mean I would imagine that they would have killed him.
0: Yeah, a lot of POWs during World War One didn't end up living, and the same during World War Two. So, uh, the fact that Lawrence is able to survive this, even if he ends up suffering psychological effects, proves how strong and capable he was. Exactly. And I found that it's interesting that this may have impacted um, some of the later events in his life. Also. So after, uh, after this terrible thing that he went through, uh, Lawrence was later involved in the built up to the capture of the city of Damascus in the final weeks of the war. But uh, he actually wasn't even present at the city's city's formal surrender, arriving several hours later after the city had fallen and surrendered. Lawrence established a provisional Arab government under Faisal, You remember Faisal, uh, which he had envisioned as the capital of an independent Arab state. So Damascus was easily the most important city at the time. And so by the end of the war, the, the Arab forces who were in the in the beginning obsolete almost and uh, not, not strong compared to the Ottomans at all are able to take Damascus. It proves uh, how far they've come and how much Lawrence ended up impacting these Arab tribes to create them into a, a force powerful enough to pretty much take down the Ottoman Empire. and then uh, Faisal is uh, Lawrence places Faisal as pretty much the president of uh, this new capital of an independent Arab state and so the dream that a lot of these British military members had because because Arab was Arabia was uh, their ally during this time was to make him stronger by creating this independent Arabian state. And so uh, Lawrence is able to finally fulfill that dream and it makes Faisal the leader of it in Damascus, even no, uh, though it later eventually fails and uh, the city is later taken by uh, different forces. Lawrence and the fact alone that he is able to do this and commit to this plan, making it a reality shows uh, just how much he had an impact during World War One
1: yeah and do you do you uh do you know the government that was uh, decided upon
0: uh faisal ended up being president over the Arab state so democracy republic
1: was it democracy I believe so all right well, I wasn't sure I thought maybe it wasn't a well at least not like a true democracy
0: it Really, uh, I don't even want to say that. Um, it, it wasn't before, for sure, but uh, it was a lot more united, at least, if not totally a republic or democracy, after Faisal becomes leader. Yeah. Um, besides all of this stuff that he did for the British military, Lawrence actually did a lot of important stuff and made a lot of important contributions to the Arab revolt in the area of strategy and liaison uh, by himself and uh, the the ones that he participated in personally, and includes several very important military engagements. And uh, I'm going to list off some of those. So on January 30th, or sorry, January 3rd, 1917, uh, he was responsible for an Ottoman, out an attack on an Ottoman outpost in the Hejaz. On uh, March 26th, 1917, he attacked the railway at Aba el-Nam. On uh, June 11th, 1917, he attacked a bridge at Ras Baalbek. Then in July of 2nd, 1917, he defeated uh, the Ottoman forces at Aba el-Lisan, which was an outpost of Aqaba. On September 18th, 1917, he was responsible for an attack on the railway near Mudawar, Mudawara, sorry. (laughs) Pronunciations are kind of weird. On, uh, September 27th, 1917, he was responsible for an attack on the railway that, uh, destroyed an engine on this, on November 7th, 1917, uh, after following a failed attack on the Yarmuk bridges, blew up a train on the railway between Giara and Amman, and, uh, he ended up suffering several wounds in the explosion and ensuing, and ensuing combat, wow. but later continued his, uh later continued his military feats. Yeah, I can even imagine. Uh, you just suffer from blowing up from a bridge on a, a train on a railway. Jeez. That's crazy.
1: Wait, I'm looking at the next one. So just two months after the explosion, after
0: his wounds, he's back? Yeah, just two months after. Wow. And that's... a. Uh, that's his own stuff that he's doing. That doesn't even include any uh, any British military stuff that the British military made him do in between those two months. <laughs> he was back doing his own stuff two months later. Wow. Yeah, very strong man. So on January 23rd of 1918, uh, again, two months after his accident, he, uh, he got back with the Battle of Tafila, which was a region in, south, in the southeastern of the Dead Sea. And uh, with Arab regulars under the command of Jafar Pasha al-Asghari, the battle was a defensive engagement that ended up turning into an offensive route and was described in the official history of the war as one of the most brilliant feats of arms. Now, Lawrence was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his leadership at Tafala and, and was promoted to lieutenant colonel. So only, two mo- so only two months after his injury, he ends up being promoted lieutenant colonel after an impressive military feat, to say the least.
1: Yeah. Wow. He just took an entire explosion and then gets right back up and, and even promoted.
0: Yeah, and a ward on top of that and one of the most brilliant military tactics. So in March of 1918, he was also responsible for an attack on a railway near Aqaba. Then on April 19th of 1918, he was responsible for an attack using British armored cars on Tel Shang And then on the 16th of September, 1918, he was responsible for the destruction of a railway bridge near Amman and area on September 26th. 1918 he was responsible for an attack on a retreating ottoman and german force near the village of tafas and the ottoman forces massacred the villagers and then arab forces in return massacred their prisoners with lawrence's encouragement oh my gosh <laughs> so a that's lot of blood there
1: <laughs> wow if you kill our villages we'll kill all your men
0: she <laughs> oh wow
1: that's that's dark
0: tragedy that's of warfare dark. yeah yeah so the ottomans massacre their own pe- massacre these villages of people then the arabs endure and massacre the ottomans and the warrants encourages it too wow that is that is brutal eye for that an eye <laughs> yeah all right and with, mean, at
1: least that's that's pretty much the end of it
0: yeah pretty much and uh, with all these huge military accomplishments, his attack on Akbar, uh taking down Damascus, and his several independent military uh, tactics and events that he did, uh, he has created for himself a successful career in the military, to say the least. And by the end of the war in 1918, Lawrence has been hailed as one of the most enigmatic figures in Arab uniform. A man by the name of Thomas and his cameraman, Harry Chase, having heard that Lawrence was arriving in, uh, in Jerusalem, I believe it was, shot a great deal of film and many photographs involving Lawrence, which Thomas used in a highly lucrative slideshow presentation that toured the world after the war. So uh, you think uh, after doing such a after having such a great military career, he'd, he'd retire or begin to settle down, but actually he takes this show on the road and he creates a slideshow that shares his moments and, uh, some of the accomplishments that he had during world war one. And he tours the world with it.
1: Wow. Yeah. So we're going to get more into how he, uh, his post-war life, uh, right now.
0: Yep. And, uh, Again, Lawrence doesn't really settle down after all of this military action he's very well known for, but continues to go on and do even more and greater things.
1: Oh yeah, he goes on to do uh, campaigns for Arab independence and uh, conferences, and it's just he just never gives a break.
0: <laughs> yep, and uh, he he keeps on pumping out and uh, keeps on making all of these different great accomplishments really till he dies, and so. Uh, Now we'll get into some of those. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we'll be right back after a short message from our sponsor.
1: So getting into his post-war life. So after the war, like we're saying, he started attending peace conferences, lobbying for Arab independence from the Ottoman Empire. And against detachment from Syria and other Arab countries, so essentially he wanted Arab. He he was pro Arab independence, but he didn't. He wanted to make keep uh, Arab and Syria together and uh, keep them strong.
0: Yeah, and you have to remember that the most powerful force at this time was the Ottoman Empire, and so developing this independent state with uh, Syria and the other Arab countries would create a uh, a rival essentially for the Ottoman Empire. The idea was that if all these Originally separate and uh, independent tribes that lived in Arabia and fought against each other could unite to create a united people, they could really uh, do a lot to rival the Ottoman Empire. Exactly.
1: And he was so supportive of the Arab uh, independence that he would uh, go in full, full robes to these peace conferences to let them know that he was on their side.
0: Yeah, well, and you also got to imagine that he spent almost, or he spent a lot, if not all of World War One, fighting with these people, and so they essentially almost became his family. They were people that he he knew personally and that he had respect for because he fought with them on the battlefield, and so it makes sense that he would want to support such an action to uh, help create this United Arab State. And like you're saying, he came in full robes, and so. uh seeing uh, this Englishman and this British gentleman come in full length Arab robes was a shock for the British people because it was something that they weren't used to seeing these different Arabian cultures. And uh, it it came as a shock, especially with uh, Lawrence being already such an established British gentleman that uh, he, he shows his influence from the Arabs and uh, the Arab culture really shines through. And uh, he represents us pretty well with his, uh, with his demeanor and the robes he ends up wearing to all these events.
1: Exactly. And he became somewhat of a celebrity. Uh, so much so that he was made the official advisor on Arab affairs to the current colonial minister, then Winston Churchill.
0: And that name should sound familiar if it doesn't to you guys already. No, it definitely sounds familiar. He's a, He was a very
1: important uh, figure in both, both World War Wars both world
0: wars yeah and uh gallipoli campaign if you guys might remember that one it ended up being a failure but it was uh one of the things that ended up being most well known for and uh i think about the rise that uh t lawrence has from uh from this simple school boy who was uh often neglected by his parents and uh treated really unfairly he grows up to end, end up being this amazing man who does all these crazy and amazing military feats. And on top of that, archeological feats to rival it and uh, his work with uh, castles in, in France and uh, his political work with uh, developing this United Arab state, uh, his warfare tactics, uh, he ends up authoring several books. He really creates for himself uh, an image that has created inspiration all the way till today. And uh, he's very much a self-made man.
1: Exactly. And after the war, he was still uh, he was still determined to be a part of the military. So he then enlisted in the Royal Air Force on August twenty eighth, nineteen twenty two. While also having completed his first
0: copies of the three hundred thirty thousand word text, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. That's a really big book.
1: Yeah. He hadn't yet published it yet, but he was, he, this is a, like his life's work.
0: Yeah, pretty much. So if you guys don't know the seven pillars of wisdom, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later was essentially, like you said, his life work. And it described a lot of the events that he did during, uh during world war one with the Arab campaign, but also provided some practical advice and wisdom from his own life that would be a, a source of inspiration and something that he would end up sharing with, other people and what inspire others to, uh, to pursue, to be like himself.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he was so, um, passionate in, in pursuing this, this, uh, writing this book that he, he, uh, ended up relinquishing his position, his position as Colonel in order to, pers- uh, to pursue the publication of his new book. And, Unfortunately, the, rare, the Royal Air
0: Force didn't take this too kindly and dropped him due to their humiliation. Jeez. So like, no, if we're going to quit them. We'll drop you ourselves. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it honestly makes sense. And uh, the fact that he joined the Royal Air Force alone, even after he had done all of that stuff, uh, he, he didn't need to do that. He was very much doing it because he, he had a support and a morale for his country he had already done so much with the Air revolt and, uh, had served so many years in the British military and had done so many great things for them that, uh, the fact alone that he wanted to do more shows how, uh, shows how much he really supported his country.
1: Yeah. And even more so he wanted to keep, he wanted to keep doing more. Like he was, he was, he was definitely upset to find that he, uh, find the air force dropping him. So he, so he was struggling to find a position back in the military, and he eventually found himself working as a private for the Royal Tank Corps after a little intervention from a friend in the military service, Sir Philip Chetwood. So he was he was uh, also later transferred many many more times to the military, while he was still developing his literary works.
0: So we see here alone three different military branches that he serves in. He serves in, or I, I don't, not necessarily uh, three different military branches, but uh, three different major roles that he plays in the military. He was in the, the British Army, he was in the Royal Air Force, and he was in the Royal Tank Corps. So he really did a heck of a lot for the military forces of England or the the British Kingdom.
1: Yeah, he's really been around. And actually, after the uh, Royal Air Force dropped him, I do believe that he ends up finding his way back in uh, there at some point.
0: I wouldn't be surprised. I think uh, with his military stature uh, that uh, they probably realized the mistake they had made in dropping him. Exactly. This was a man who, uh, besides his military career alone, had conquered and done so much. And uh, you're talking about his books. Uh, keep in mind that he's working on these books at the same time while he's still doing military stuff. So not only is he an author, but simultaneously in the military and being a major part in that. Exactly. His works are so, such a big part of his life. It's it's incredible that he manages to balance it with his military life as well. Yep. And so we've really talked about a lot of his military life and, uh, the ton of different things that he did during the Arab revolt, the, the Royal air force and the tank Corps, and uh, really this huge, great persona that Lawrence built for himself with uh, his military career. We talked about uh, some of the archeology span stuff that we did that he did, but uh, now I think it's time to get into some of his literary works and some of the books that he ended up publishing and writing that are still around today and very popular today. So I think let's get into that. Alright, so getting into his literary works, because just as well as being a very prestigious British officer, lieutenant, major, archaeologist, he was also a very well-known author and created some books that would actually do pretty well for him, too. And so one of these books was his The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and it was Lawrence's major work, and it was an account of his war experiences. In 1919, he, he was elected to a seven-year research fellowship at All Souls College, Oxford, providing him with support while he worked on the book. And so uh, it actually took him well over seven years to finish this book, to talk about everything that he's ever done. And I'm surprised it didn't take him longer because he has done so much. And uh, the seven pillars has really become the primary source, primary source for a historian's researching lawrence of arabia because it's so comprehensive and explains so well all the stuff that he went through
1: exactly and like there's so many iterations of this book and so many different like versions like he went through maybe like six seven maybe even eight different versions of this book before he actually got it published
0: oh yeah and uh again this would really become his most famous work and uh he would he would go on to author several books but again this would be his most famous work yeah and actually certain parts of the book were also what also serve as essays on military strategy arabian culture and geography and other topics he re, he rewrote seven pillars of wisdom like emo saying three times and actually once he did it blind after he had lost a manuscript changing trains at reading railway station i just like the name of that railway station that's funny R- reading Railway Station, that's how right Rock's so. up uh, A bit of alliteration there.
1: <laughs> and it's a Reading Railway, so he got that. Yeah. It goes along with his book.
0: <laughs> the fact that he was able to rewrite his entire manuscript with uh, – rewrite his entire manuscript essentially blind, That's that's crazy to think about. His, uh, his knowledge must have been very good as well. But I guess it shouldn't surprise you too much because it was his own personal experiences. And he probably did remember a lot of it like yesterday because of how life-changing, I'm sure, a lot of it was for him.
1: What's very interesting to me is that uh, certain parts of his book also served as military strategy. So the military would look at his book and they would analyze it. And and use certain aspects of the like guerrilla tactics as their own as their own strategy.
0: Yeah, right. Just be like, all right. So you see, Lawrence did this here, so that means we got to do this too. <laughs> Worked well, out well for
1: him, so we got to do it too.
0: That's awesome. Being yeah. being like a a textbook for the British army. <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, you spend so much time in the military, it's like secondhand nature to write. <laughs>
0: British I guess
1: military, military
0: strategy in your books, right? So used to it that lifestyle. Think about how many different subjects are in this book, too. the essays, military strategies, Arabian culture, geography, uh, life lesson stuff. Uh, there is so many topics that he covers in this book, and that's why it's 330,000 words long. It makes sense. This is a really big book, and it covers a ton of different topics it's it's crazy to think about the amount of topics that he is able to cover in this one book that's in crazy that's
1: i think did i just say in crazy like insane and crazy
0: <laughs> it is <laughs> that's in crazy i know <laughs> yeah
1: He's done so much and traveled so far. It's like, how, how big do you think the book actually is?
0: Oh, it, it's huge. I know because I've, I've tried to read it and uh, I'm not done with it yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow. How many pages? I assume it's like reading an entire
0: dictionary. Oh geez. I, I don't remember the word. I don't remember the page count, but I do know it's, it's a massive book. Oh, oh yeah. And, uh, because of how popular it would eventually become, there are actually many alleged embellishments in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Though some allegations have been disproved with time, most definitely, most notably, that he crossed the Sinai Peninsula from Akbar to uh, the Suez Canal in just 49 hours without any sleep. So, essentially, Lawrence's wife has become so textbook and so famous, and uh, he almost becomes like a mythological being uh, immortalized in the pages of history that uh there's embellishments in his book that make him actually end up seeming grander than he was and uh it's so hard to think about that uh, he could be even better than he already was because the stuff that he did do was already crazy in itself let alone uh, the the tall tales that were created about him like it, it, come on it's a little bit crazy to think about that uh he could cross this from akabar to the Suez Canal and just under 49 hours without sleep. But also take in mind that in real life, he still did make that crossing to Aqabar through this most hostile desert and was still able to take down the city. I think that's just crazy to think about as this alleged embellishment.
1: Exactly. I mean, like, it's insane. Like, he doesn't even need the 49 hours without sleep. He shouldn't have survived just crossing it on his own.
0: Yeah, exactly. He doesn't need the embellishments, but people weren't I'm still liking them about him, anyways.
1: That's only because people saw him, as so it's such a grand figure at the time. They just.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: They worshipped him in a way.
0: Oh, yeah. And so in the preface, uh,. Lawrence acknowledged George Bernard Shaw's help in editing the book, and the first edition was published in 1926 as a high-priced private subscription edition, printed in London with illustrations. Lawrence was actually afraid that the public would think that he would make too much of a substantial income from the book, and so he actually vowed to not take any money from it. And indeed, he ended up doing so not of himself, but because the sale price was one-third of the production cost, and it put him a lot of money in debt.
1: So he made no money from his
0: his Huge ass book.
1: <laughs> his most important book. Dang. He lost very money. Unfortunate.
0: He lost money from writing his most important book.
1: I mean, but hey, it's to each your own. Maybe he just wanted to get the get it out there. Maybe he didn't really need the money.
0: Yeah. He, the but, come on, the fact that he loses money and he thinks that this is going to make him a substantial income that's such a turnaround that really stinks yeah jeez. especially really after writing such a after writing such a massive book, the fact that he ends up losing money because of it now come on <laughs> yeah that that's the point when you when you get mad <laughs> it's very unfortunate.
1: So, other than uh, the Seven Pillars, he wrote uh, several other books, uh, including but not limited to uh, Revolt in the Desert, uh, published in
0: March 1927. Uh,
1: March, March 1927, yeah. Which was an abridged version of the Seven Pillars that he began in 1926. And uh, like we were saying, it was published in March 1927 uh, in both limited and traditions. He undertook a needed but reluctant publicity exercise, which resulted in a bestseller. And again, he vowed not to take any fees from the publication, probably to appease the subscribers, to seven pillars, who had paid dearly for their editions. So this man just did not like money,
0: apparently. (laughs) Right, That's what it seems like. He's like, God, I have to go out and do this publicity stuff to make money. Who needs money? I I lost money in my last book. <laughs> exactly Lawrence is just like too immortal that money is obsolete in. <laughs> yeah and uh, this was a, a reprint of, uh, of Seven Pillars and on a bridge version so it, it was in a way it's its own separate book but it was very much also the Seven Pillars just in a different form and so the Seven Pillars as uh, as we can see reprinted in two different editions really becomes hugely popular and so again it's crazy to think about the fact that he ended up actually losing money with the print of the revolt in the desert and the seven pillars of wisdom
1: i mean it's insane like this is how he became so known these books and it's and it's crazy to imagine that these books he gained like nothing from
0: yeah I, I don't know if I'd want to keep publishing books after that, but the revolt in the desert shows that he did end up doing that.
1: Yeah, and even since then, he still was publishing books. Uh, one of them, uh, one of the more popular ones, being known as the Mint, which was unpublished in Lawrence's, which wasn't published in Lawrence's lifetime, but was later published in 1955, and told of his recruitment training in the Royal Air Force and the hardships and victories he endured and achieved throughout Uh, a substantial amount of income went directly to the Royal air force uh, benevolent fund and to archeological environmental and academic projects. So Um, again, so again, one of his most popular books he gains no income from, but fortunately it did go to a good cause going straight to the military.
0: Yeah. So he didn't end up getting out of the funds because it wasn't published in his (coughs) lifetime. But uh, the one book that he does end up making money on, he gets a substantial amount of income from, and it doesn't end up going to him, but so, to support the Royal Air Force.
1: Yeah.
0: So, uh, uh, really, uh, really not taking too much money here, even with all of his fame. Yeah. But I do but like still, the
1: what fact, a life to live.
0: Yeah, for sure, what a life to live. That and he lived an absolutely amazing life and a, a crazy life to say the least. And uh, I think it's only proper that the money that he did get from the mint went to stuff that he very much did and supported in his own lifetime, like archaeology and environmental sciences and these academic projects and the Royal Air Force. So uh, I think it's a good way for him to uh, establish his legacy and uh, a good way to pay respect to him and all the stuff that he did by giving the money that he earns from these books to these different organizations. Exactly. And so, obviously, it's only proper then that uh, we end it with uh, how he died and uh, the legacy that he continues on till today, even. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So, let's get into that. All right. So, going on with his death and legacy. Lawrence was appointed many prestigious awards in his lifetime, and his legacy lives on today with his many books and movies uh, especially the 1962 adaption of Lawrence of Arabia, which in itself produced many awards. So uh, just some of the awards that uh, he got throughout his lifetime included the Companion of the Order of the Bath, which he got on August 7th in 1917, the Companion of the Distinguished Service Order, which he got on May 10th in 1918, the Knight of the Legion of Honor in France, which he got on May 30th, 1916, and then the Croix de Guerre, which he got in France in April 16th, 1918. And then uh, I think Lawrence ended up dying of a, um, a supposed motorcycle accident. Uh, the causes really ended up remaining pretty obscure as as pertaining to that. Uh, we do know that he died in a motorcycle accident, but that's really about it. And then uh, he ended up being buried at the Saint Nicholas Morton in Dorset, and uh, a bronze bust of him was erected at the the crypt of Saint Paul's Cathedral in London.
1: Yeah, it makes you wonder, like uh, he died in such a vague way. It makes you wonder if it was if there was some purpose behind it. Yeah, like maybe someone wanted to get rid of him because he was such an influential figure at the time. Like someone's bound to hate you.
0: Right. It it wouldn't surprise you if there were people that were targeting them out there. Every famous person at least had one person that wanted to target them. Yeah. So uh I, I wouldn't be surprised, but uh again, it's very speculative and uh it's really unknown exactly besides the motorcycle accident, what happened. And that's why uh I'm I'm writing a series of books and uh the second one. In the series that I'm writing will mention how Lawrence of Arabia may have possibly died. It's a, a fiction series that I've been writing. Oh yeah. All right. And uh, everything we talked about, uh, that's pretty much it. That is the life of Thomas Edward Lawrence. And uh, he was quite an incredible, incredible man and uh, he did a lot during the World War I campaign and was a very well-known archaeologist and author and uh, very much a self-made man that a lot of us can look up to today. And I think it's only fitting and proper that we end on such a note.
1: Uh, it's, it's a very good topic to look up, uh, to look on because it doesn't get mentioned a lot in, uh, in like your everyday history class. And it's a very important and influential topic.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And that's why we want to, share his story and keep his legacy going. All right. I think, uh, get into the conclusion now. All right. We'll wrap this up. And then next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. And then, uh, we'll continue this series on people and, uh, explorers and archeologists and how they played an important role in history and who they were and, uh, what they did. So uh, as usual, I'd like to give a shout out to Anchor, our podcasting service. It's been a miracle in making these episodes, and uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. And uh, again, besides a few uh, errors here and there, uh, it's been a pretty good it's been a pretty good thing for us. And uh, I highly recommend it. Um, more importantly, I'd like to give a shout out to some of you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page as it continues to grow. And uh we thank you for the new people that have been following that and, uh, have been liking that and, uh, your continued support allows us to, uh, keep growing this podcast. And, uh, we, we really appreciate you and, uh, doing that. Then uh, Ian, if you don't have anything else to say, uh, I, I think that's about it.
1: No, uh, all that being said, thanks guys. And, uh, We'll see you again when we get our next episode
0: out. Yep. Thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is Jacob. Ian. All right. Carpidian. Carpidian.